Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we have on the pod, I'm very excited, a father-daughter combination. This is very exciting. As a father of three daughters, nothing brings me more joy than having a father-daughter combination. And so for the second time, we've got a father-daughter combination on the podcast. Today we have Bob Goff and Lindsay Vidicic. How close is the last name? I feel like I'm... So I butchered close. it. So close. Vidicic. Vidic, for all the Croatian listeners, I apologize. <laughs> I will do better next time. But Lindsay, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having us. Oh, I'm so glad to be on here, Luke. It's just such a, a treat to be able to do this with Lindsay, who's one of my favorite people. Somebody asked us once, we were at a gathering, I think, on the East Coast, and Lindsay was standing next to me, and they said, Oh, like, uh, like, when did you guys meet? <laughs> Not knowing, I said, well, we met at a hospital. And, uh, so um, it was love at first sight. And, uh, and so fun that uh, Lindsay and her uh, beautiful family live just minutes away from us, as do the rest of our kids. Everybody's uh, like within, you know, 10 or 15 minutes, which is, you know, nine or 11 minutes too far away as far as I'm concerned. Um, but it's such a treat to be with you. That is outstanding. Now, Lindsay, uh, as uh, an educator, you've taught basically all over the country in the Pacific Northwest, Nashville. Now you're back in San Diego. Uh, like You've taught all over the place. It seems like you know every kid in America because you've taught in so many different places. Is that true or false? <laughs> I wish I could teach every kid in America. That'd be amazing. But yeah, I, I got to teach in Tennessee and in Oregon and now here in California and um, yeah, it's really neat. I've gotten to switch this year into being more of a coach for other teachers and then getting to lead the intervention program at our school. So it's been a fun progression. That's outstanding. <laughs> and you've survived a very tough year for educators. You're still, you're here, you're sane. And uh, I like much kudos and respect for surviving this year as an educator. Oh, yeah. Well, it definitely, it wouldn't be possible without having super supportive family and friends around there have definitely been um some really challenging moments but we're making it through that's great that's great. now Lindsay, do you talk about uh how uh you identify your enneagram type in public do you talk about that oh yeah <laughs> i didn't know that i have in public before but we've definitely talked about it a lot as a family okay uh, so I, I consider myself a nine with mm -hmm. an eight wing so i have that little like streak of justice in there Outstanding. Outstanding. So I, I'm an Enneagram seven and I met your dad a couple of years ago at the Hills men's conference. And before I met your dad for this interview, I was told what was going to happen. And so I'm driving up three hour drive to Fort Worth and I'm told Luke by someone who knows Bob, and I'm not going to say this person's name, but we're going to go with the story. Um, they said, there's a vortex with Bob. He's just going to suck you in. And I said to myself, I'm not going to be sucked into the Bob Goff vortex. And so I'm like, I'm not going to get sucked in. I'm not going to get sucked in. What happened? I got sucked in. We did this uh, live podcast and afterwards we're in the green room backstage. And I found myself like at your dad's feet going, tell me how you write talks. And he's just going through his slides. I'm just, yeah, tell me more. Like he just completely like, I was trying to not fall prey to the vortex and he sucked me in. So growing up, with a dad who has this like larger than life Enneagram seven vortex, how, uh, like what is the best thing about growing up with a seven for a dad? 
Oh, you know, I was actually remembering this just the other day, Dad. I don't know if I brought this up to you in a long time. When we were growing up and we would go to people's houses for dinner, and you know how most people have like the grown-ups sit at one table and the kids sit at the other table? Our dad always sat at the kid table with us. (laughs) (laughs) And I know that could be like, at first glance, it's like, oh, because he's like got this childlike joy, which is totally true. But it was also because he genuinely likes us. Like he wanted to (laughs) time. with us so that's really what it was like growing up with dad that's crazy nothing has changed over time uh because what uh the things that you love and decide as are uh, like really important values to young in uh, parenting are the things that will manifest themselves a lot later too like so i just think of all the adventures that the kids have led us on it isn't like me having the idea Uh, People think I had the idea for parades and all this. I was just tagging along. So I'm just the guy that writes about it. (laughs) But it's really to, uh, for those of you listening that have a family, to just find the things that you love and then intersect if you have kids to intersect with them about it and just live in wonder about how do they see the world and what do they want to do next and think are uh, constantly just trying to get out of the way and let them run wild, like let them do what they need to do and just follow along. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So uh, Lindsay, one of the things that many people like connect to about your dad is that your dad's like put his phone number in books and he's made himself available to so many people. How, what are some uh, like pieces of advice to help other people who want to be available for so many people to not do that at the exclusion of their own kids or grandkids? What are like, what are some lessons that you've learned about like how to create margins by watching your dad I assume he's good at this. If he's terrible, then like, we'll just go to the next question. But I assume that's not the case. So how do, how do you do that? How do you make yourself available for so many people while still prioritizing the ones closest to you? You know, I think it comes to being really enthusiastic and strategic about what you say yes to. Like we've had a lot of conversations in our family about thinking about the life that you want to have in the family that you want to have and working backwards from there and using that to make your decisions. Um, So when I became a mom, I said no to a lot of things besides my son, like, you know, really narrowed down the list to like, I am going to do these three things and that's all I'm going to focus on. Um, Writing books with dad being one of them. Um, But I think that's, that's a really big part of it to, if you can say yes to people as much as possible, but also be really clear on what are the things that you value the most so then you're yeah. yes be really enthusiastic but when we're when we're hanging out with dad the phone truly does ring all the time which is awesome um but then when when there's food present has been one rule when there's food present he'll wait to answer the call so if we're all having dinner together or something he waits and we'll we'll call back later Bob, how did you make it so that they're excited that your phone is ringing all the time and they don't see it as a constant news? I guess maybe the the practice of when there's food on the table, like no phone's going to get answered. But like, it seems like for many families, like dad's always on the phone, but your daughter, I think she's not a liar. Like she legitimately is happy about your phone always ringing. Yeah, I think for each of us, we find an equilibrium in our family and that we're always doing this. Uh, One of the questions they asked to the astronauts the first time they went to the moon is like, how do you get there? And they said a thousand mid-course corrections. So Mm -hmm. the kids are really gracious about it, but really it's been a thousand mid-course corrections to dial in. How do we pull this off? And they know there's nothing in it for me. These are strangers to me. 
And so it feels like an extension of how all of like team golf and team Vitasich like uh, roll now that mm -hmm. I might be the one on the phone, but we're all like doing it together. I think if you ask all the golf kids and Sweet Maria, they'd say they just released a book, a kid's book, because they're we're all like in it together. Um, so it feels like the uh, the calls uh, aren't intrusive. It doesn't feel like a home invasion. It feels like uh, an addition to the day. And they can just, they know that we're just going to spend about a minute or two on the phone with somebody and the value of being heard and that uh, you were valuable enough to pick up the phone and say hello and how can I be helpful? I just think that's something that won't cost you a nickel. It'll just cost you a couple minutes. Yeah, that's great. And you get to the place where your daughter wants to write a book with you. And obviously, you know, it's not just because she's your daughter, but she's, you know, she spent many years working with kids. She has experience. Obviously, she's a mother herself. And so it's not just like, hey, this is my daughter. I'm going to bring her along out of nepotism. But she obviously brings a lot to the table. But I love the idea that you get to do this together. Yeah. She, to clarify, she didn't write a book with me. Uh, like I tagged along in a book with her. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> that's why it's a good one. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> great. But it's the language of children. She knows what children know. I'd be saying jokes or things that wouldn't be funny to kids. She said like, <laughs> oh, what she knows, she knows she speaks me. And so mm -hmm. she said she could turn that to say this would actually work uh, with somebody who's six to 10 years old. Oh, that's great. That's great. The other night, my my daughter was saying, hey, dad, for your next book, you should you should write a children's book based on like your last book. And I was like, yes, but I, I think it'd be so much more fun to do this together. And anytime you can do the things that your life calls you to do with the people you love the most, it seems like that is like one of the greatest joys that anyone can have. Lindsay, what was your yeah. experience like writing with your dad? Oh, it's so fun. Dad's the kind of dad who will like look at what we're really excited about and been and be a part of it. So it was very much that for me with being excited about teaching kids and writing for mm -hmm. kids um, that he just wanted to come alongside that. But it's fun. It, like I would take a first pass at it, then send it to dad to look at. And um, through the illustrations, there's a lot of back and forth that happens with that. And so that part was really fun to connect um, all of these stories with these really beautiful pictures and then look at those together. Oh, that's great. Well, some of the stories that are in the book are, are stories that those of us who've followed Bob's work, Bob's writing is, is speaking. We've heard some of these stories before and uh, they're not stories that maybe seemed uh, like the first stories you'd want to like tell kids, specifically the story about your neighbor who has cancer and she passes away. And for some, like that's a, like, that's a really troubling thing to try to communicate with the kid, though most kids are going to have to deal with you know, a grandparent or someone close to them who goes through that as you're trying to translate your dad's story to a kid's level, specifically a story about a neighbor passing away from cancer. Like, how are you processing? What's the thought process on getting that down to a, a kid's level or maybe better said going up to a kid's level? Yeah. Um, one thing that I think about a lot is just as a teacher, you want to what would happen if a child actually 
experienced this themselves in their own life. So kids are going to experience loss. How can we help parents to talk about that? What are, what are the messages that a parent would want to know um, to be able to say to their kids? So I would like all of the photos that people sent us from the first kids book of reading the book every single night with their kids before bed. And I would think, you know, for these new stories, how, how is this going to lead into conversations when you're talking with your child? Because some of the stories, um, like in the first book where dad, you know, is in a Jeep and goes flying out the roof. And um, there's like, because he wasn't wearing his seatbelt, you don't want kids to then think it's a joke to not wear seatbelts. So you have to handle that really carefully, like what's going to be the lesson and the takeaway for kids. And then what are things that I can write into really simple terms so that parents can have really quality conversations with their kids. Mm -hmm. I love listening to how the filter that passes this uh, by Lindsay, because she'll be interpreting constantly. I know for the, like the other books that I write, the filter, I usually do a pass to say, have I just admitted to a misdemeanor or a felony here? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what if I change a word or two where I'm just like actually not cop to that? Um, and Lindsay will think in just uh, kid terms, how could that be received? Uh, and I really think that there's a ton of books for adults that are out there to read. There's just not a lot of great kid books. I mean, there's The Hungry Caterpillar and some things that are kind of uh, feel uh, pretty elementary, but to have a book where you could have pictures and actually chapters that you go through that I think was the bullseye that we're aiming for. Hmm. So what do you think makes for a good children's book? Having Lindsay write it. (laughs) 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 What do you think, Lindsay? You've read so many of them. Yeah. As a teacher, I would say there are so many kids books that exist that are like a poem, like a really beautiful, like here's this like sing-songy poem. And it's like, it feels a little bit like a, like a greeting card or something, which is great. There's totally a place for that beautiful illustrations and just really simple text, but there isn't really a problem and a solution and an application. And so as a teacher, I'm constantly I'm reading books are what are the comprehension questions we can ask as we're reading this Mm -hmm. that could lead to deeper connections with themselves or with another book they've read or with something that's happened in the world and if you have a story that's really simple doesn't have a problem like what do you do if your neighbor gets really sick um then it's not going to lead to really meaningful conversations with kids yeah, so it seems like all narrative is someone you care about in a conflict and how do they solve that conflict. So we need that to have, you know, a meaningful story. And so as you're, as you're telling, like, say, for example, the story about the neighbor, um, the conversation that you would like, how about this? What is the con- like an ideal or a good conversation for parents to have based on that story with their kids as they read that, uh, as they read that in this book? Yeah, my first thought, I mean, dad could add on to this, but my first thought is I'd love for parents to talk with their kids about when 
they see something hard happening in someone else's life that might feel, you know, scary, like sickness, that you get closer to people instead of pulling away, that you get close so that you can help them not feel afraid. Um, and that was really the takeaway that we wanted people to have from Carol's story um, and was the takeaway in dad's book for grownups, but then translate that for kids. I think what makes a really good story too is the relatability. You take a story uh, that people would connect with. It's something familiar. It, there's a woman, her first name is Vester, and that's not like a very common name, but she had two sons that were in World War II. At the time, they used to take the ammo to keep it dry. They would put it in these ammo boxes and they would wrap it in paper and dip it in wax. But the problem is when they were in the fights, they couldn't get at the ammo because it was wrapped in paper, dipped in wax. And so a Vester worked at Johnson & Johnson and they weren't making like uh, vaccines then. They were making other things. And so what she did is that she invented something to keep the ammo dry so they could fight the fights they were in. And she brought it to her boss and he thought it was a stupid idea because he's a guy. And uh, <laughs> so she, because she was undaunted in that, she sent it to President Roosevelt uh, at the time, and he sent it to the Pentagon, and that's how duct tape was invented. Is that crazy? Wow. So a, a woman story. who knew why she was doing what she uh, was doing, she wanted her sons to get what they needed to fight the fights they were in. And so if you talk about something really relatable, and then you talk about something really important, like yeah. what is it that we're giving to our kids to fight the fights that they're in? I don't mean ammo. I mean, faith. I mean, encouragement, yeah. hope, resilience, those kind of things. I think that's the makings of a really good story. So yeah. if you uh, ever write that kid's book, and I hope you will, I hope you'll just fill it full of things that will give people the things to fight the fights they're in. I think that's what Lindsay and I were trying to do with this book, that the kids would just, the parents would have something to talk to their kids about and that they could be equipped to deal with the parts that are hard about life. Yeah, I think that's a that's a perfect metaphor that sometimes we have something we want to share with the world, whether it's through writing or whatever gift that we give, but it's wrapped in something so that people can't access the gift we're trying to give. So I think that story is it's uh, it's spot on. And so for the for the for the person who's trying to serve the world and give whatever gift they're giving to try to make it very accessible, it seems like that's a that's a great lesson. One of the things you guys also talk about in the book is very important to me, and that is a favorite family pizza place. Now, Lindsay, you, you talk about it in the book, you, you get tokens there and all that, but first, tell me about your favorite pizza place as a kid. <laughs> I didn't want to say Chuck E. Cheese because we were going to things and didn't want him to get sued. But I think they've gone out of business, so whatever. That was uh, your favorite, Bob. Oh, dude. Oh, yeah. I just, I'm a sucker for those little tickets that oh. come out. Okay, yeah, the pizza tastes like cardboard, but the tickets are rocking. I like I get the fun. Like it seems like a very fun place, but I feel like as like Bob, I've I've read a lot of your books, I've listened to you talk a lot. I've always said nothing about respect, but I, I might call CPS. Like if that's your down a notch or two, yeah. That, that's the first thing I'm like, okay, the I can be pulled away from that vortex if that's your kid's favorite pizza place. Yeah, that's but, it, man. My ankles are made of clay. Yep. He's not perfect, people. He's not perfect. Okay, so how often would you guys go to Chuck E. Cheese uh, when you were a kid, Lindsay? Oh, 
oh, that was like our place we'd go probably to celebrate anything. Like that would be, you know, birthday parties, last day of school. It was, mm-hmm. yeah, it, that was a fun spot for us. Um, but I remember vividly, we would always go, we would do the ski ball there and we would try to get as many tickets as we can and they'd come flying out and then we'd be so disappointed when we ended up with like a tiny eraser at the end of it. So we loved that as like a, a illustration for kids of like, we, we need to be giving away grace to people without thinking that there are tickets involved. Like there's no limit. Yeah. Get this, when uh, Chuck E. Cheese went out of business, uh, they had to shred 7 billion tickets. Is that crazy? <laughs> I like 7 billion tickets. I'm like, that's either poor planning or like if they could have just left that room open, we could have gotten something bigger than a pencil. Uh, <laughs> There's some metaphor there. That's a good metaphor for seven something. 7 billion tickets. I'm going to put that in my next book. Yeah. How many of us are holding on to tickets that we should just give away to the world? Uh, no, did you, did, did you hear? So obviously in Texas, we've had some snow. We've had a little bit of an issue. And our beloved HEB is uh, part grocery store, part religious center for Texans. And uh, when we at a uh, HEB near my house, the, uh, the ice is everywhere. Snow's everywhere. Power goes out. People are in line at the grocery store. HEB looks at everyone and goes, hey, just take your food. Just go home. Just take your food. It's free. It's on the house. And really? it's like the antithesis of Chuck saying, we're going to hold on to these tickets. We're going out of business. HEB says, y'all are hungry. The, you know, we can't take your money right now because the cash register. Just take it. Live like that. It seems like that's kind of the thing that um, love would do right there. That's actually the Acts Church. It's uh, Acts 2 and 4. It said they broke bread together. Uh, and it wasn't just like pounding the carbs. Uh, but they were uh, uh, spending intentional time together and they were also living like everything was everybody's. And mm-hmm. that's the best part. God does his best work in community. Um, mm-hmm. I know for uh, the family, when we were growing up, we used to have this tradition that at dinner time we'd want to be super grateful for sweet Maria having made it. And I would mm-hmm. always start out by saying, I want to be the first one too. And then all the kids would jump in. Thanks Rob, for making us dinner. So I would just be, instead of saying something like lame, I would mm-hmm. say, I would like to be the very first one and just kind of slow it down. So everybody has the opportunity to jump in on something great. Mm-hmm. So it would be cultivating an environment in your family yeah. where the kids are beating you to the beautiful stuff. Uh, but you could set that up so that they could just like jump in and they would know. And it wasn't like, there's no shame involved. It's just like, I want to, and they go like, oh yeah, yeah. Thanks for making dinner. Do you remember that, Lindsay? I do. And then you would always go, oh, I'm the fourth person to say, dinner, Maria. (laughs) Darn it. Yeah. It's almost like you're a choir director. Like you're teaching people to to like the sing your mom, wife's praises uh, by creating this like call and response. Like, it's beautiful. I love that. Maybe something too about instead of having like a teacher-student relationship with your kids uh, to say student-student relationship with your kids. Like we're trying to learn together and figure this stuff out and it's amateur night around here. I I, I don't know what yeah. I'm doing. I'm going to do the best I can. But And sometimes I got closer uh, than other times to it. I think a lot of dads that are 
trying to provide for the families don't end up providing for the families. Yeah. Um, there was, a, I don't know if you remember this, Lindsay, but when I would leave for work, I would put my suit on because I was a lawyer and all that. And then when I'd go, then the kids would grab a lot onto my legs and they would be like having shoes that look like my kids. I'd be walking towards the front door <laughs> with the kids Don't go. Yeah. But we talked about why I do what I do. And we talked about it kind of like Lindsay would in telling a kid's story. We talked about it as peanut butter money. It's like, so you know we have peanut butter at the house and I'm going to get peanut butter money. So so we'll have the peanut butter. And so it ended up being instead of an adversarial relationship with work, like work is the enemy, they go like, oh no, no, this is like peanut butter money. Does that resonate with you, Lindsay? Even like if, when you reflect back on your childhood? Yeah, yeah, definitely. In our house now, it's apple fritter money is what we, <laughs> mom, mom and dad, I need to go work so we can make apple fritter money. <laughs> They're like, go, go, go. So to maybe just a, a quarter turn on some of the things, if you can explain why you're doing what you're doing, uh, that it'll make all the difference in the world. Um, otherwise, you you assume your kids know uh, things that are going on that they don't understand. So when we uh, we were very like kind of fiscally pretty conservative, um, and we wanted to pay off our house, and we had a zero is the hero uh, party. And how old do you think you were, Lindsay? Oh, I think I was eight or nine. I had no idea what was going on. I just knew we were really excited and it was zero's the hero. <laughs> yes. And so we went to the bank and we wrote the last check and we all went together holding mm -hmm. hands. When we went to pay our taxes each year, we would stop and get ice cream. And we would talk about this idea of first fruits that when the, back in the Old Testament, when they bring their crops in, they would actually make an offering. So we wouldn't talk about like why tax rates are so high and I can't believe they're gonna buy a tank with this. But instead we would talk about something very relatable, like let's go celebrate that dad has a job. And so then we walked together and we would put the envelope in the mailbox. Did that mean anything to you at the time, Lindsay, as a young person? I think, you know, the, the theme in all of those things is that you guys always talked about things knowing that we were listening. So we shaped our worldview based on how positively you talked about things, whether it was talking positively about work or speaking positively about us within earshot, but behind our backs, like kids pick up on that stuff. If you're saying yeah. like, I grew up hearing my dad say to people like, oh man, I just love spending time with Lindsay. And I would be, you know, on the other side of the room, but you hear your parents saying those things. Um, so I make a point to say that about my son within his earshot. I love spending time with you. I love spending time with my son. He's the best part of every single day. And just kids absorb that. So whether it's our enthusiasm about them or enthusiasm about how we are spending our time, like I make a point to say, I get to go to school. I love you. I'm going to see you at the end of the day. Um, and I think that really has an impact on them. And mm. every marriage is wired a little bit differently. Um, and so people should do whatever is good for them. But the whole idea of a date night to like get away from the kids, I'm like, oh, heck no. Like, 
I don't think I can't remember ever going out on a date night because we would want to be together because like we have this time. So that isn't a lack of love and affection for sweet Maria Goff. Like we all, she is the matriarch of this family, but uh, the messaging to the kids is we're all in this together. We're not trying to find some time to be away from you guys. I can't wait. Like let's hang out. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Lindsay, did you, uh, did you find yourself taking that same practice to your kids or to your family? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's so important. Like we do spend time just me and my husband, but right now while we're in this weird pandemic time and we've just been time far away from people, that's not actually an option for us right now to <laughs> leave our son and go yeah. like, we're together all the time. And so yeah. we make a point of making sure our son, even though he's two, we make a point of making sure that he knows we love spending time with you. We're so excited to have family time with you. And you can tell he's just like soaking it up. Like there's so many things that are hard about this year, but this is like the best year of his life because he's Hmm. with mom and dad all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is definitely one of the graces of pandemic and what we've gone through uh, where we're just together a lot. And it is something that I know I'm going to look back on and go, I'm going to celebrate this time. Uh, There was a line on the TV show, The Office, uh, like I think it's like the last season where they said, "I I wish there was a way that we would know when we're in the good old times, when we're still in them. And I know that like right now, like this pandemic, it is the good old times that I'm going to look back on and go, I was with my three daughters so much and I'm so grateful for it. Um, so yeah, I, I love what you're saying. Okay. I, as a former track athlete and a track fan, I love the story of Lex the long jumper. Uh, first of all, cause it's alliterative. Anyone whose name starts with an L should be a long jumper, uh, except for me. Cause I couldn't jump, but, um, I, I love any track story. So thank you for representing track and field in the book. Appreciate that. Um, so the story is, I assume, uh, Lindsay, you heard the story of Lex the Long Jumper growing up and you worked it into the book later. You'd heard it before you started writing this book, right? Well, oh, yes, yes. I heard it before starting to write the book, but he's been a friend of ours for the past few years, I think. Yeah. We met him mm-hmm. a few years ago. Yeah, he started out, he would um, go and speak at my dad's class that he was teaching at a local college. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, that's how he started that friendship. Would he go to Pepperdine? Is that the... Or do you no, teach in multiple colleges? Training, he's training down at the Olympic Training Center, which is in San Diego. And so oh. I teach at Point Loma Nazarene. And uh, so Lex would come up and talk to the students there. And then we'll have gatherings here in San Diego and he'll show up. And he's pre- preparing for the next Olympics right now. Isn't that crazy? Really? You know, the most recent thing Lex is doing, he's uh, uh, they've introduced a new sport into the Olympics, which is BMX bikes. Uh, and bike riding. And so Lex is learning how to ride a BMX bike, uh, including jumps, and he's totally blind, but he's just walked the course. He's memorized all the turns. And so he knows what to do. It is nuts to Mm -hmm. see this guy just like, uh, he's just so aware of his surroundings uh, and he's used his, the absence of this one facility uh, to enhance all the other facilities he has. Yeah. And those kinds of stories just travel so well, uh, whether you're a kid of, you know, eight or 108. Yeah. So the line that you're in the book is, it's not about what you look at, or this is Lex talking. He says, it's not about what you look at. It's about what you see. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lindsay, as you're translating that to kids, what is a lesson that kids need to learn when it's not about what you look at, it's about what you see? 
Well, that really ties back into what we were just talking about earlier with how we present the world to kids. I would want kids to know that they can choose how they see the world. So you can both be looking at the same thing happening in the world, like a pandemic that's happening. And you could say, oh, this is, you know, a really hard time and get stuck in that, which it is. And that's true. But then you can choose to see like there's really, really beautiful things that are coming out of this. So at school, we talk a lot about a growth mindset and a fixed mindset. Most teachers in classrooms do. And a fixed mindset would be that I give up, I quit, this is too hard, I could never do this, where the growth mindset is the power of the word yet. So you could take all those sentences and say, I can't do this yet, or I'm not able to, you know, I can't do math yet. So the power of that, like there's always hope. And so teaching kids that perspective that, you know, you can be looking at something that's really hard, but what do you choose to see in that? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I, I feel like I've heard that from a psychologist named Carol DeWick. Maybe she talks. Anyway, I'm just pulling things out of, out of the air right now, but the idea of like growth mindset where you, you see possibilities, Bob, it seems like that, from the outsider, it looks like that just comes naturally to you, that you always see potential. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think I've, another thing I'd put in the category of uh, learning from the kids, uh, and they're not like, a, it's so weird to say kids are like 30. <laughs> like, amazing, only because I'm older than dirt. Um, but the to have your head on the swivel to say, boy, we're going to learn this stuff together and uh, continue to learn. Uh, yeah. So I would say to parents that are listening, boy, write stuff down. Uh, all the people that have kind of moved the needle in the world uh, wrote things down. Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin. Yeah. Uh, oh, uh, George Lucas. Um, yeah. He was, while he was writing the uh, the script for Star Wars, he was also, he's a really accomplished musician and he was scoring American graffiti. And uh and so uh, the way you locate a scene is by role number and uh, dialogue number. And so you could say like role 10, dialogue three. And, and so somebody had asked him a question from American Graffiti, like, where is that? And, uh, and they were having a conversation and the guy said, look at, you know, role two, uh, dialogue two. And so George Lucas, I'm not kidding, wrote down R2D2. <laughs> and that's how he picked the character's name. And so one of the <laughs> things that will happen if you're a uh, if you're always spinning the puzzle pieces and writing down the things that your kids have said or things that make sense, uh, what you'll do is you'll intersect something adjacent that you're already mm-hmm. thinking about, and then a new great story is born. Yeah. Okay. Well, in honor of Lex, let's go with the idea that last one is the best one. Let's talk about last one, best one from the uh, book that I want to cover. Um, the idea of obviously the the title, everyone always, or everybody always. Um, You make the observation in the book that if it's just some people sometimes, like that's not really compelling. Um, But everybody always, that seems a lot. And as our kids uh, are telling me the stories of their life and the stories of like what they're going through, I know there are certain people that are really probably easy for them to love. And then there's certain people like I'm not going to tell stories right now, but there's you know one girl specifically right now that's not easy to love because she's done some things. As you're trying to like coach her up in the book about how to love everybody always, where do you start when when you're trying to teach how we can love everybody always, even the ones that are hard? Lindsay, I'll let you take the first swing at this one. <laughs> 
Well, my my very first thought is a lot of times the people are the that are the hardest for us to love are the people who we know the least about what's going on in their lives. So we made a really important point in the book right from the get go that kids need to trust the grownups in their life, like their parents to help them know who are safe people and who are unsafe people, you know, because there is a time where, you know, loving everybody always can mean that it's appropriate to have distance and that's okay. Yeah. But, um, and that it's okay to get help to resolve conflicts with people. But when we talk about loving everybody always, a lot of times the very first step for kids is to get to know the people who are giving you the hardest time. Like even mm -hmm. as a grown-up, I've had some interactions this year where it's just been really hard and you just go, where did that come from? And then as I've sat down and talked, like as, you know, coworkers are stressed and friends are stressed and you find out what's really happening in their lives. Or as a teacher, if a kid would come into the classroom, all kinds of worked up and off, my very first question would be, can you tell me what happened this morning? Like, what did you do before school? And a lot of times the answer to that would completely change how I understood their behavior. Um, so that would be what I would say is the first step to loving everybody always. Yeah, understand That's the right. backstory. Like what, what's the thing underneath the thing? We have a dock behind the house and there's all these minnows that go and lose in their minds on the surface and jumping. And uh, I thought my first thought was like, oh, that's amazing. My second thought, I bet there's a big fish underneath them, chasing them shallow. And so to Lindsay's point, that sometimes when people are a little bit on edge, just find out what's the big fish chasing you shallow right now. Because <laughs> you're a little, I see a lot of activity, a lot of splashing going on. Like what's going on underneath? Yeah. Well, Bob, the disp uh, disposition of I'm going to learn with my kids, I'm going to learn with the young people around me uh, is especially poignant with this subject because I think many of us uh, just see the uh, the splashes on the surface and don't realize that there's something underneath the surface that's probably chasing everyone. And that's why it's making it so difficult to, uh, to love. I mean, that's a that's a great lesson for, for everyone, not just for kids. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, this has been great. Uh, I, I love the father-son uh a father-daughter book idea. Um, so Lindsay, one of these days I might say, hey, can you uh, help me convince my daughter to write a book with me? Uh, if, if I was going to ask you for that, what is like, what is the one thing that as a dad you can do to make your daughters want to do their work with you? Oh, well, I think it's getting to know what, what your daughters are actually lit up about. You know, that's a great starting point. What are they excited about? But also too, with big projects like this, it's really just a lot of little tiny projects strung together. Like it isn't, you know, the kid's book, it's 300 words a day for 90 days and you've got a book. So talking, mm -hmm. um, talking with your daughters about what are you excited about? And then what are all the little projects we could do together to make that happen? Oh, that's great. Bob, what is a, an unexpected joy of those 300 words a day with your daughter that uh, beforehand you wouldn't have understood to be such a grace that you got to experience? I think I've just learned more about Lindsay and Richard and Adam the more we just go through all the different seasons with them. Like they are definitely our teachers and we are their students. And But most of all, we're just a family just trying to navigate it. Sometimes we get it right. Sometimes we don't. And we're not like uh, uh, claiming to have it all figured out, but we're claiming to have it uh, like something we're totally committed to. We're just committed to figuring this thing out. 
and I might know a handful <clears throat> to like have Tigger in the room. It's, it takes a lot of energy, but they'll just say like, well, go do your thing. Uh, and then if it isn't a good fit, then I think we've had cultivated some honesty where the they could say like, oh, let's tap the brakes on that one for right now. We can say it in a really nice way. And uh, Lindsay, I mean, you get a feel for her personality. She's super kind and as are the rest of the kids. Um, and they uh, were not kind of up in each other's grill about things. We just said like, we're just trying to figure it out and be kind. There's a thing that uh, it must've been Sweet Marie or the kids that taught me this rule of thumb. It's like 100% kindness, 0% drama. So it's kind mm -hmm. of a good rule of thumb in your family to just go like a lot of kindness, not a lot of drama. That's what makes junior high school awkward because it's 100% drama and 0% kindness. <laughs> Can, if someone's trying to think, okay, I, I want to kind of redirect the way my family interacts and there's a lot of drama and maybe kindness isn't uh, as high as it should be. Could you give like a practical step of one way that we could lower the drama and increase the kindness or is some practice that could help uh, facilitate that sort of environment? Gosh, that sounds like right up your alley, Lindsay. I'm picturing like koala bears on a stick. Go up or down, you know, it would be something because then I would want to walk in having it on my ear. Um, but to just find some clue that kind of uh, indicates the metrics that like mommy's feeling a little stressed out right now, or dad's feeling distracted, or how are you feeling? Where's your koala bear? Um, and to say, why is my koala bear in the fireplace? <laughs> <laughs> but to have another kind of external thing where you could uh, externalize something that's going on internally to mm -hmm. say it's kind of like this. And wouldn't that be the kind of thing you do, Lindsay? Oh, definitely. And then I think, too, a lot of times it's something that's really specific that's an issue in interaction. So a super common one with kids is tattling and that being a problem in families. And really what kids want is their parents' attention and their teachers' attention and to feel like they have a really important voice and an important job in their family and classroom. So I made a rule in my classroom with tattling that kids could only tell me about another person if that person was bleeding, stuck in a very high place, or being awesome. Like that was the rule. And so I think that same idea in a family where it's like you could stop the whole family to give a compliment to somebody. Like we had that in our house. We could call a family meeting at any time, like even us kids. And it could be about something really silly, but just our voice really mattered. And so encouraging kids to channel like something they're already doing, they're already telling you about their sibling or about their classmate. But what if we just give that the little quarter turn to be like, can you interrupt me to tell them why they're being awesome? Um, and that just changes the whole environment. I love that bleeding, stuck in a high place yeah. or doing something awesome. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like that could be the next book. Yes. Uh, I'm actually in a high place bleeding. I'm stuck. And I think it's awesome. <laughs> yeah, there it is. There's uh, there's your next book title. I look forward to reading that one. Uh, this book, uh, Everybody Always Four Kids. Bob, Lindsay, congratulations on this. Uh, it, it's great. I'm glad you wrote it. It's a nice gift to give to the world. So as a reader, I say thank you. And uh, it's been great to talk with you. Thanks a million. I hope you do uh, just have just a terrific day. And for everybody listening, 
God bless you guys. Outstanding. All the best. Thanks, Thanks guys. for checking out so Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>